0: My dad's mentor always would use the phrase, hold steady and keep sweet. My dad then would share that with me. When Finding Nemo came out, he kind of transitioned it into just keep swimming. I oftentimes reflect on that when going through my own challenges and and have used that as my own encouragement for others.
1: That was Cassie Mecklenburg. She is the executive director of Sheltering Wings, a shelter in Danville, Indiana, for victims of domestic abuse and violence. We'll hear more from Cassie on the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, Episode 12. I'm your host, Andy Dix. When I'm not hosting the Hopeful Hoosier Podcast, I'm the president and a board-certified executive coach at AD Growth Advisors, an Indianapolis executive coaching and consulting firm. And one of my favorite engagements is when I get a chance to help a client discover his or her life's purpose. You know, at some point, if you hang around this world long enough, you're going to start asking some really important life questions. Like, is this all there is? Why am I here? And what is the meaning of life? Well, do you want to know the secret to the meaning of life? I can tell you. It's not that hard do the things that matter most to you and don't do things that you could care less about that don't matter to you. When you do more of what matters, you will have a meaningful life. Here's the thing though, only you get to decide what truly matters to you. And unfortunately, we don't come with an instruction manual that tells us what matters most to us. So we spend life kind of trial and erroring it to figure this out. Well, there is a shortcut with my clients i use this really amazing assessment tool called the reese motivation profile to help them define their motives and needs and desires and their unique value system so they can get clarity about what matters most to them and what doesn't matter at all kind of based on their natural emotional and neurological wiring i know from my reese motivation profile that i quickly learned that i'm an idealist by nature and it's probably why i produce the hopeful hoosier podcast to be honest I have this natural hot button around the topic of social justice and fairness because of my idealism. Many of my guests, you'll notice, are idealists also, and it's their sense of idealism that really drives them passionately to pursue their vision for making this better and brighter future for us here in the state of Indiana. I always come away from an interview inspired and challenged to continue to do my part, and of course I hope you do too. I was recently asked to speak in an event in Avon, Indiana, called Men in Action. And this is a group of men who are trying to make their positive difference, and they're also doing their part to support Sheltering Wings, a domestic abuse shelter in the small town of Danville, Indiana. I was invited to tour Sheltering Wings' facility as I prepped for my speech, and even though it was a beautiful, sunny summer day, my drive from Indianapolis to Danville felt more and more ominous the closer I became. I didn't really know what to expect. And as the father of two adult daughters, I really did not want to see abused women who've been forced to flee their homes, many with children in tow. People abusing their partners, you know, the people that they're supposed to love and protect, makes me both angry and sad. The more I thought about it during my drive, my idealism just really amped up this sense of outrage that such a beautiful, idyllic town such as Danville, Indiana, even should need a shelter for abused people. When I arrived at Sheltering Wings, my attitude immediately changed. I, I couldn't have been more pleasantly surprised and, quite frankly, relieved. What I found was this bright and welcoming place that reminded me a lot of like an extended stay type hotel. Sheltering Wings is a safe place where women and children can escape an abusive and potentially violent home life. And once safely out of their initial crisis situation, they find healing and most of all, hope for a better future. Immediately after my tour, I arranged a second trip back to Sheltering Wings so I could interview Cassie Mecklenburg, who's the executive director. This episode is produced in October, the National Domestic Abuse Awareness Month. Cassie and I sat down for a conversation in a very beautiful and comfortable room they call the therapy room in Sheltering Wings. What kind of an issue is domestic violence in Indiana?
0: We are helping families of any economic background, of any educational background, socioeconomic, race, ethnicity, every neighborhood. And so when you think about what domestic violence looks like and how prevalent is it, it is unfortunately just woven into the fabric of our communities. The statistics show that one in four women and one in seven men are affected by domestic violence in their lifetime. There's really no person whose life is not either directly impacted or in some regard a person would know someone else that has been affected by it. So when you're looking down the pew at church, there are families within your congregation that have likely been affected. When you're looking within your schools, within your workplace, um, it, it really is, it, it's everywhere and it hits home. And as I started into this position and started telling people what I was doing and talking about how we help families who are escaping domestic abuse, it was amazing to me the number of individuals who opened up about their own personal experiences. And so sometimes I think, when we think that it might not be as close to home as we think, you know, oh, that affects someone else, that is in their neighborhood, those are those people, whatever that means to a person, um, the reality of it is, is when we start having conversations and open up to one another and allow that openness and vulnerability and transparency Um, Within our relationships, we'll find that it's much more common, unfortunately, than what a lot of people believe or understand.
1: When we talk domestic violence or domestic abuse, can you give me a working definition so we're all on the same page of what we're really talking about?
0: Sure. Domestic abuse is when you're in an intimate relationship and one person exerts control over the other person. When they... Lord over the other person. And that can manifest itself in a couple of different ways. So oftentimes when we think about domestic abuse, we think about the physical abuse that happens. You know, we're looking for the bruises, we're looking for the cuts or scrapes or whatever, the broken bones, whatever the case may be. And that's certainly an element of it, but it also is verbal and emotional abuse. And those are scars that you may never see within a person. There's also sexual abuse financial abuse, even spiritual abuse. And so it can really look like a lot of different ways, but the foundation of all of them is control and manipulation. And there's there's a component in all healthy relationships where there's accountability between the two and there's trust that's established and, and that kind of thing. But when one person is trying to strip away the opportunity for them to make their own decisions, when, when they're trying to take that control over the relationship, that's when you're moving into the abusive components.
1: When someone is removing that choice then of how they want to live their life and their free will, how do they finally reach the point where they come to some place like sheltering wings?
0: That's a good question because it looks so different for everyone. So I don't really have a great single answer of what that looks like, but there tends to be a moment of realization there's a lot of people that we'll talk with that will say to us something along the lines of i knew that there was something not right about the relationship i knew that there were unhealthy components to it you know i knew that my significant other or my spouse or whomever i knew that they shouldn't be asking who i was with all the time where i was when i was going to be home telling me who i was you know who i could or couldn't hang out with that kind of thing i knew that that wasn't good, but I didn't know that it was abuse. Or even for families that come from or that are escaping physically abusive relationships, sometimes they don't realize the magnitude of how serious a relationship is. But there's oftentimes that moment of, of realization where their eyes will be opened. And that might be when police are called. Sometimes it escalates to that Point of it, but sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't quite get to that level, but there's just that moment in their life where where they're saying, this is beyond just an unhealthy dynamic in a relationship where we're not on the same page. but my rights, my ability to make choices, is being stripped away. I'm being isolated from friends and family and people that I can trust and rely on and my support network. And, and there's something that's not right. And, and so people will start to see some of those red flags in their relationship. And, and sometimes it takes a conversation with a friend or a family member or a coworker where, do you ever have those moments when you're talking out loud about something and in your head, you might not have come to the conclusion but as you hear your mouth saying it when you're with someone that you trust all of a sudden you're actually realizing oh this is different than what my mind was telling me and i'm realizing that this is much more serious than whatever my mind was telling me previously and so it, it looks different for everyone
1: so tell us a story of maybe someone who came in off the street and and needed services and just kind of give us that that Pathway of of what their story was like as an example of what we're talking about.
0: There's a family that comes to mind um, from one of my early days of of being here and it's a story that just really resonated and hit home with me because there was a, a woman who was sitting in our lobby and her parents were with her and a sister was with her and She was coming in to live in our facility, and she was leaving an abusive husband. And the reason that she wasn't going home with her parents or her sister, you know, seeking that refuge with the family is because the situation was so dangerous that she was afraid that if she went to their house, then he would come looking for her there. It would put not only her safety in jeopardy, but it would also put her parents or her sister's safety in jeopardy you could just see the brokenness of this family. She just kept saying, I, I didn't know. I, I, I didn't think it would get to this point. I, I never thought that he would do this to me. You know, I didn't think he was capable of it. And a lot of times abuse starts out small and then it incrementally graduates. Because what happens is if someone is demeaning and belittling and calling someone names, then, then that has a tendency to become normalized in a relationship and then they take it to the next level, and then there might start being other components, other emotional forms of abuse, and, um, or they might, might start physically holding someone back, and then that becomes normalized. And then they take it to the next level. And, and that's what happened with this person, um, where incrementally the abuse was just getting worse and worse and worse, um, and one day her husband came home and hit her. And that was an awakening for her in that relationship. The family knew that she needed a safe place to go, knew that she needed to be able to get the help that she needed, and and she kept saying, but if I go back, I can help him. If I go back, you know, I can help him. It, it could be different, because she genuinely loved him. and And that's understandable. I mean, this was someone that she had committed her life to. But we also all have to realize that sometimes we can't help the other person. Oftentimes we can't. They have to make those choices for themselves. And so it was interesting hearing this conversation transpire between her and her parents. And there was just that moment where she said, I I know I need a place like this. And I know that he needs his own way of working through this. And, And I don't know that I can ever help him get to that point where we can get back together without having the space, without having the safety and security for her own well-being. There was not an opportunity for that to happen in their respective lives.
1: Sheltering Wings is really a refuge, Mm -hmm. safe harbor for people that are in crisis. Mm -hmm. And when they walk in the door, this facility looks more like a residence inn or a Mm -hmm. extended stay hotel then it does what you would think of as as a shelter by intention. Sure. It's very clean, it's very open, it's very airy, nice courtyard, but it's very secure as well because of the necessity of everything you're talking about, right? right? But what's the experience? Walk me through when a woman comes to the shelter seeking refuge, what's the experience and, and how do we walk them through letting them become a resident?
0: Sure. So what we always do with every person who reaches out to us is we go through an assessment with them because we want to help understand the situation that they're coming from so that we can immediately start providing the tools or resources that they need. So families can call us whether or not they need safe housing. And I sometimes think that that's one of the messages that we need to make sure that we're over communicating. Because I think that when people who are familiar with sheltering wings, when they think of us, They immediately associate us with safe housing, emergency services, and that is absolutely a significant part of what we do, but we want to help anyone that needs assistance, whether or not they need that safe housing component. So for anyone that calls us, we'll go through an assessment with them to determine a little bit more about their situation, to determine what appropriate next steps might be, if they need help with a protective order, if they need to go through safety planning if they're still at home, you know, what are some of those things that they need to consider? What key relationships do they have, either in the community, at their workplace, um, at their, at, within their congregation, within their family? Can we possibly point them to, but then outside of that, what are those resources that we can provide? If safe housing is a part of that need, then we will welcome them into our facility, and then once they're here, we'll go through an even more in-depth assessment, because. When a person comes to our facility, oftentimes, they haven't come to us with this long drawn out, you know, elaborate plan where they've been able to prepare to come and, you know, they're coming with suitcases of things, but a lot of times they're, they're fleeing an abusive situation and they might literally come here with just the clothes on their back. We have a fantastic community Of supporters that have helped come alongside of us along the way so we can make sure that when they come in they're properly clothed and fed and and, you know sometimes they just need a shower to start fresh and a shower makes everyone feel better kind of thing and you know whatever it is that they need immediately we want to make sure that we're taking care of it because like you said our facility is a part of that we designed the place very intentionally to feel more like a home than I think what most people would stereotypically think about when they think about a shelter. Our bedrooms are, we have four beds in them, and pri- they're a private bathroom and a closet and that kind of thing, and um, we're sitting right now in our therapy room, which is one of my favorite rooms in the shelter that overlooks the courtyard, and it has a lot of light and a lot of calming features that are in here because we just want this to be a place of rest and healing. and and so that's that's very much a part of their journey. So then it goes through the process of connecting them with those tangible resources, economically or emotionally, that a person might need, because we really wanna do everything that we can to help them build stability and dependence, that self-sufficiency, because we know that it's not enough to just get a person out of an abusive relationship, but we want to help them move forward safely. And so what are those tools that we can start helping them acquire so that they can start to move forward on their own.
1: How long is the typical woman and her family, because a lot come with children, how long are they residents here before they're able to move out and be on their own?
0: Our average stay is just under 50 days for a family to stay here, but they can stay up to a year. And it just really depends on what a person's situation is. You know, a person goes back to an abuser on average statistics say, seven times before they finally re- leave a relationship. And so sometimes when people come to us, they're not ready for that to be the final time that they leave. You know, there's there's different components that might make them feel like they need to go back. And th- that's been a really big part of conversations that we read about on Twitter or um, in the media, you know, why she stays, why does she go back? and and that's an understandable question to ask but it's also a very understandable rationale of why sometimes people feel like they do need to go back because they might feel economically reliant on the individual you know if they genuinely love them and they have a heart and want to help them change they may choose to go back for family reasons you know with their kids sometimes you know they don't want to separate their kids from the other parent or they don't believe in divorce and so they can't do that, or or whatever the case is. And so when they come to us, we always wanna help talk through what some of those barriers might be for them. Because more than anything, we want them to know that they're more valuable than what they might understand. That they are loved, that they are cherished, and that the relationships that they're coming from are not a reflection of what they're worthy of.
1: And part of it is explaining to them and convincing them that the life they're living, even though it may feel quote unquote normal to them, maybe because of family history and other things, it's not normal, it's not okay.
0: Right, that is a hard mental barrier for any of us because we're products of our environment, right? And so when we all look back on our own lives, we can see how our history has impacted us and created us and shaped us into who we are and shaped our understanding of what normal is. And so for a lot of families, they may come from a cycle of abuse. Uh, A person that grows up in an abusive environment whether they're witnesses to or have experienced it themselves, um, kids that grow up in those environments are 11 times more likely to become a victim or an abuser themselves. And so it's really hard to break that cycle. But as a person, they're really worth it to have that conversation with them, to help them to understand their true strength, their true worth, their true value. and. Um, For me, the understanding the concept of human dignity is so important. It is so important for us to communicate that within our community, to talk about how we need to treat every person with human dignity, with respect, that everyone is deserving of love and compassion and honor. And as people, it's so important for us to internalize that as well, that we are worthy that we're valued, that there's a place for us, that there's a purpose for us. And sometimes that's hard for us to grasp. But regardless, we want to help transform their understanding of, of their value.
1: So we, we bring someone into the facility. They finally start recognizing that they are a victim of domestic abuse, domestic violence. And the healing process begins because you're not just providing shelter, you're providing counseling, you're providing life skills, you're providing all kinds of essential services in order to get this person well enough emotionally, physically, mentally to be able to go back and face the world as a self-sufficient person, correct?
0: Mm -hmm. We do. And so we... We talk with each person about what their own personal goals are, and everyone's measure and understanding of success or personal achievement looks different, and that's okay. But according to what that looks like for a person, um, we'll help them achieve that. So for some people, it is completing their high school equivalency and getting their driver's license. or Get going through immigration paperwork might be a part of that, um, securing safe housing, a reliable job that can support their family. It really runs the gamut of what a person desires when they come in here. And, and so we talk through, you know, what, what would it take to help you feel successful? What would it take to help you move forward independently? And whatever it is that they identify, we start to put a plan in place. And we're not able to do everything here. We don't have every tool and resource at our disposal, but that's why we are so grateful for our community because we've got some great community partners with other social service organizations, other financial entities among churches. Um, with we'll Celebrate Recoveries that we can refer people to, or what mental health service providers and assistance for kiddos that come through here. So we, we've we got a great network of support, and we really are so blessed to be able to have the resources that are available. And, and we do some things in-house as well. I mean, we've, we've got a therapist on-site, and we have support groups, and we do budgeting classes and computer classes here on-site. But really, having a community of support is important, because The other part of it is our ultimate goal is not for people to live here long-term. We want to help them move forward. And so when they leave here, we wanna make sure that they don't feel like their safety net of support is completely stripped away from them. And while they can come back and connect with us at any time and we'll help them at whatever point that they're in in their own life, but if they can be connected to other community resources, how much stronger is that network of support when they already have a great therapist outside of the shelter or a mental health provider um, or they're connected to work one or dress for success or whatever other agency that they might need assistance with
1: it was astounding to me to be in danville indiana you know one of the closest things to mayberry that indiana probably has well and right? literally
0: we have a mayberry right. cafe here right. yeah
1: and and it's idyllic in a lot of ways of small town yeah. middle america and yet there's a need for this facility. How many women or family members total does the facility support over the course of a given year?
0: We have approximately 115 family units that come to the shelter. Now that's a, that's a mixture of women who are uh, single and are not coming with kids, and then that that's a mix of some women that are, are coming with kids. We typically have more children here than women at any given time. So when I say 115 women or family units that come through, In addition to that, there's about 125 kids that come through our doors. Uh, Sheltering Wings is the second largest domestic violence shelter in the state. We have 68 beds and we are almost always at capacity. And so despite being, you know, what some might consider Little Town USA, the ideal community, Mayberry type mentality, as great of a community as we are in, uh, that doesn't make us immune. And it's not just our community that we're serving either. We serve all throughout Hendricks County and then even the surrounding counties. And, and over the years, we've had people from outside of the state come. Um, just depending upon what their situation is, when a person needs safety, sometimes it's not safe for them to be in their own community. It makes them too accessible to the person that they're trying to escape. And so we work with other agencies when they'll refer those families to us. Um, and, and we try to share the, the resources that we have here and, and the shelter when we need to help people the other side of it that i haven't yet mentioned is we're getting ready to start housing men in our facility we're creating a separate unit for men and their children who are coming because as i mentioned earlier domestic abuse affects one in four but one in seven men and so we've got to start looking at that population as well and it was never the intent of the board to exclude men from our mission but you know, 20 years ago when we opened, when we were talking about domestic violence, we just understood it to be defined as women and children. But we've learned over the years, um, through those that have sought our services, as well as what we're just seeing nationally with those trends, that men are—absolutely have the potential to be victims as well, and, and they are victims. And so we want to make sure that our services are available to anyone and everyone, regardless of their gender. And so this late fall, early winter, we'll be opening up a unit so that men have a safe place to go as well.
1: With October being Domestic Violence uh, Awareness Month, what maybe three things would you want our listener to understand and take away about domestic violence and and be more aware of?
0: The first one I'm going to share is probably the most simple one, but can be a little bit intimidating, and that is just to talk about domestic abuse, which might sound like a minor thing, but what we find is that the more that we talk about domestic abuse, the more that we normalize that conversation, it helps shed light on the situation. For so long, domestic abuse is something that has just happened in the shadows. It's not something that you talked about. It was behind closed doors. It, you know, that was a family issue, but that that's not, the case, nor is that necessarily the most helpful mentality. When we can talk about these types of things that are happening within families, what we do is we open the door for people who might be experiencing it to feel more comfortable. Because if you're willing to talk about it, then you're also probably willing to listen and be sympathetic to what my situation and story is. That's a little bit of the thought process that people have a tendency to go through. And so just talking about it talking about the prevalence of it, having a sympathetic understanding that anyone can experience it, and if nothing else, just being a listening ear. You don't have to know all of the answers when you go down that path with someone. It's perfectly fine if you don't, but the more that we talk about it, the more it brings light to the issue at hand, and the more that it empowers victims to feel like they have a voice because somebody believes them. The other thing during the month of October and particularly is you'll see more about domestic violence on social media. You'll see it portrayed more on the news and having conversations about it. So it kind of ties to our first one, but having conversations on social media about it is really important. So for folks that, follow Sheltering Wings' Facebook page. We'll be sharing information all throughout the month of resources that are available, questions and conversation starters that parents can have with their teens who might be experiencing domestic abuse, ways that people can get involved through volunteering, through financial donations, whatever the case is. So stay in tune with that kind of thing, whatever's happening in people's community, or follow us and, and things that we're doing. And then the last one that is a little bit more specific to sheltering wings but really all of uh, so many domestic violence shelters and organizations are are doing this but there's a lot of different observances throughout the month. So we have a group of men that come together Men in Action and there's going to be a breakfast that men can come to. There's a Sunday during the month of October where we're encouraging members of the congregation to wear purple to bring to shed light and bring awareness about domestic abuse. Um, There's a day where you can eat at Cunningham restaurant groups in Hendricks County and a portion of your meal comes back to sheltering wings. And we also have a vigil where we will celebrate the lives that have been saved and remember the lives that have been lost due to domestic violence. And, And so there's ways for people to get informed. There's ways for people to get involved and and to become advocates for organizations for survivors of domestic abuse um, and to come alongside our mission and to help us in that way.
1: If I am a co-worker or a boss or even just somebody in church with somebody else in in a relationship with them, what would be the, the maybe top three or four warning signs or hints that someone's in an abusive relationship? What would I want to look for?
0: Some of the signs could include um, recusing themselves more and more from relationships. Oftentimes they feel like they're a walking billboard for domestic abuse, and, and they don't want to be, and so they'll start to kind of pull away, isolate themselves from relationships. Or on the flip side of things. Their abuser will be isolating them. They'll be pulling them back. They'll be telling them who they can and can't hang out with. And so when you kind of start to see someone retreat from relationships that otherwise seem to be normal and healthy, and you know, there's you don't understand why they're pulling back, that, that's something to be mindful of. Using an, an example of if it's a warm day and they're wearing long sleeves um, or long pants or they're wearing sunglasses inside, you know, they might be trying to hide bruises or scars that they might have. So just being mindful of, are they starting to wear things that are different than what they might have been wearing normally before. In the workplace, we find that sometimes people will, this sounds strange, but people will get an overabundance of gifts sent to them at work. They'll get flowers one day, they'll get chocolate the next day, they'll get um, a stuffed animal or something. And I, you know, I've had an, a manager say to me, well, I would just think that that's you know, a, a spouse doting on, on their spouse, and and sometimes that's the case. So in each of these instances, it might not be the flag for it, but you have to understand the other side of it, where sometimes some of our families will talk about how their spouse or significant other does lavish them with gifts because they're apologizing for what happened the night before or they're trying to cover up and they're trying to make themselves look like this really great person to the rest of the world but at home behind closed doors it's not and so if you start to see those things coming through at the office and the reception of receiving them maybe isn't quite so warm and excited um, that's a red flag to be mindful of the other part that i would just say is is to listen to people when they're talking about things that are happening at home when they're talking about relationships you know every relationship is difficult and there are times in each person's relationship where It's not uncommon to go through things that are difficult or to argue, but when you start to see patterns established, when you start to hear of these things on an ongoing basis, uh, they may never identify it as abuse. They may never even tell you the full extent of what's happening, but when you start to see these patterns and the way that they talk about those relationships might be a little bit different than it was at the onset because for the most part, people don't go into a relationship that right off the bat starts off as abusive. There's something in that relationship that woos them, that draws them to the other person. And so it then becomes kind of that slow fade, if you will, or the slow progression of um, moving into something where it escalates over time. So just being a good friend or family member and listening for some of those signs of of patterns is an important part.
1: Is there anything else specifically about sheltering wings that you think is really important for a listener to understand or be aware of?
0: You know, when I think about, about sheltering wings, I, I, want, I want to equate it to hope and healing. And we can, we can talk all day long about resources that are available and the intervention and, and how we can help people get out of abusive relationships, and that is so important. Um, And and we want to provide that for people, or we can talk about prevention, and we can talk about ways to break the cycle of abuse from happening again, um, or prevent it from happening in the first place, and what that looks like in the community. And again, that's really important. But what it really comes down to is a person understanding their sense of purpose. And and what we want people to know is that there's hope and healing available for them. We want to help them change their understanding of what a normal relationship looks like. We want to help change their understanding of the environment that they they might be a part of that is not necessarily the cause of domestic abuse, but there are different, different things in place that might have a greater likelihood for some of those things to happen. So what tools can we help them equip, can we help equip them with? What are those resources that can help get them out of a situation so that they're not economically reliant on another person? Um, What is that understanding that they need for themselves that they don't deserve this? There's so much more. You know, when you look at at the families that we serve in the face and, and you see in their eyes the hurt, the desperation, the the defeat that they experience i just want to wrap them up and tell them that they're loved that they're worthy of more and that there's hope for tomorrow whether we're sitting down with them in a support group or in a therapy session or a case management meeting or we're we're doing budgeting classes and helping them complete their high school equivalency it's all toward the end every single time it's toward the end of them seeing and understanding and maximizing their full potential because I believe that God created every person for a purpose and he wants them to experience the joy and love that he is pouring out on us and, you know, experience that here on earth. And so anything that we can do toward that end is what we want to do. And in our mission statement, it talks about how we extend the love and compassion of Christ to every person that we serve. And if we're doing that, then they're going to sense that. And His love transcends all of our own understanding. Sharing that message with people is a really important part of what we do. And and we serve people of any faith or of no faith. And um, we respect people where they're at. But when they're open to those conversations about the hope and healing that's found through Christ, then we want to share that with them.
1: Give us an example of someone, you can change the names obviously, someone who is in that despair state when they walked in, but they found hope and now they're a success story.
0: We have a woman that uh, we had a chance to interview for, uh, we have a premiere event every February, and we highlighted her at our last premiere event. And she is a remarkable woman. So she grew up um, in an environment where her parents were, were very loving. It wasn't one of those stories where she grew up in that abusive environment. It was a very healthy home, but as she got older, She found herself in teenage relationships that were not healthy. And when you're a teenager and you're starting to form your foundation of understanding of healthy and normal relationships that sometimes can carry with you into adulthood, and and that's what happened. And so she just found herself in a series of unhealthy relationships, had four really great boys that are just crazy and zany and active and cute as can be, and really strong little men. They were fantastic, but she shared her story of coming here, having no other place to turn to, and knowing that if she sought refuge at a family or a friend's house, that, number one, it wouldn't be a safe environment to her, but number two, she would just go right back into the same. Relationship that she was in before or a similar situation. So she came here She sought our services and she lived with us for a little bit over a year and while she was here She got an associate's degree. She got a job She bought a car while she was here and then we helped her move into another community where she is doing continuing education and is really charting a new territory a new path for her family. One of the things that she shared with us when we were talking through this journey that she was on is how important it was for her to model to her boys that there was something else on the other side. She was adamant that she did not want her boys growing up, like the men that she had brought into the home and the environment that she had portrayed to these boys. And and she said, you know, when I finally made my mind up that I wasn't going to go back into those types of situations, I realized how much it was not only affecting my life, but how much it was affecting my boy's life. And I said, no more. And so she really took ownership of that. And she made the changes just as much for her as she did for her boys. So she poured into them. We've got some parenting classes here that we do with with parents and talk about healthy boundaries and discipline and what that can look like and navigating children and navigating the teenage years and, and all of that. And she took full advantage of that as much as she could because she was determined to be the best mom that she could be for those boys. And that was really cool to see because you could tell that it was resonating with her, but it was resonating with her in a way that it was then spilling out into her family's life and with those boys. Things that the boys were saying regularly uh, when they came in the doors and, and the mentality that they had and the words that were coming out of their mouth and the way that they were treating one another was very different than when they left here. And you could see that the seeds of trust and respect, the healthy dynamics between the boys of, of love and camaraderie that we hope for within families was starting to develop and, and take root within those boys. And they're still honorary. They're still boys. They're, you know, all of that kind of thing. And they're not this picture-perfect family. And, I mean, people don't live here and all of the sudden—leave here and, and all of the sudden, everything comes up roses. I mean, we're, we're not naive to that. Life, life throws us curveballs. Life is hard. Um, And it takes a lot of effort to make changes in our own lives and then to stick with them. I mean, anyone that has started a diet certainly knows that. And so we know that. And so we always want to be here as a resource for people as they leave. But when those little things start to take root, it is so cool to see that manifest itself in their lives. And so we just hope and we pray for the families as they leave here that that just continues to resonate for them and that we've planted that seed and, and it can flourish.
1: So what's the path? if someone doesn't get out. For the person that stays in the abusive relationship longer term, thinking that it'll somehow get better on its own, what happens there?
0: It doesn't end well. The cycle of abuse has a tendency to grow and to get more serious over time. And so we, we see that story happen frequently. Like I was saying before, you know, a, a pattern of behavior normalizes and escalates to the new to a new level and then that normalizes and it it keeps escalating. It it doesn't end well and sometimes uh, families have a tendency to go back because they have a compassionate heart and they think that they can change the other person. But unless that person desires to change on their own and really is intentional and really seeks resources and accountability and support to be able to make those changes in their life, it typically doesn't happen. And so as much as we want to help the other person, if they're not willing to help themselves, it just doesn't get any better. That's oftentimes what we're seeing with families is stuck in those situations, and unfortunately it escalates. So
1: what's it take, what's sort of the catalyst for someone to finally say, I'm waking up from the denial here. My life has to get better. I can't deal with this anymore. And they show up at your door. What what really happens there, do you think, that is that turning point where they finally ask for help.
0: I think it looks different for for each person. Sometimes when a person hits rock bottom and they feel like they have no other place to go, then they'll reach a hand out because there's nothing else for them to do. Sometimes there's situations where the magnitude, it's, it's just really risen, it's escalated to a certain level that's kind of that awakening for them. So they'll seek assistance after that And then sometimes it's honestly not even that dramatic of a situation. But sometimes there will just be a mental switch that happens for a person, where they say, today is the day. Nothing of significance necessarily happens. But there's just that moment of realization of, I I don't want to keep doing this anymore. I don't have to keep doing this anymore. And I'm going to seek help. Even after that happens, though, it sometimes is really easy, after any of those situations, to fall back into what's comfortable, what's familiar. You might not like it, but when things are familiar, it just feels more comfortable. So it's really easy to slip back into it. So seeking help at a place like sheltering wings is important because that's an accountability tool for you. Um, And it's also people that can speak into your life to help them to understand, Okay, when those thoughts start to creep in again of, okay, I, I really miss him, and I want to go back, I think I can help him. You know, I'm I'm learning all of this new information, and if I just tell him what I've been learning, then he'll have an awakening and he'll, but it doesn't normally work out very well in that regard. And so we never hold captive anybody here. People can come and go as they want, but when it gets to that point where it looks like a person might be contemplating going back to an abusive partner, um, we'll have conversations with them and, and we'll try to remind them of the progress that they've made and the new life that's available for them. But sometimes they'll choose to go back even still. And, and when they do, we keep our phones and our doors always open. So a person can leave and come back as many times as they need to. And, and we will always welcome them back when they need us to be here. But of course, any time that we can try to break that cycle sooner than later. Saves them in the long run, saves their family, a lot of heartache, a lot of additional trials and trouble.
1: So Cassie, if you were working in a regular office, not not here, and a friend of yours, a coworker, you thought was experiencing this type of abusive relationship, what would you say to them? What would be the conversation? I,
0: I really would probably start by asking questions. We discourage people from presuming things within a relationship, but ask questions to help understand a little bit more about the dynamics and make sure that we're not necessarily filling in all of the dots for them, but sometimes they need to talk things through so that they can hear about the situation that they're in the midst of. So I, I would ask them questions about how things are going at home. You know, you, you told me about a situation the other day where you and, I'll call him Jeff, where you and Jeff were having a disagreement. How, how did that turn out? You know, were, were you able to come to an understanding, or if nothing else, agree to disagree? You know, how, how, did, how were things resolved there? And, and kind of let them process that and, and talk that through. And then based on that, you kind of navigate, depending upon how serious it might sound like it was, um, and then just depending upon the situation, you can connect them with resources. The most important thing that a person can do is to listen not feeling like they have to be the end-all and to solve all of the problems for them, but listen to them, believe them when they're telling you um, about their situation. And then there's places like Sheltering Wings that you can connect them to, either through our website at shelteringwings.org or by calling our helpline and connecting them with someone who can then start to dig maybe a little bit deeper into some of those situations and determine what their, their needs are.
1: Because somebody can make a connection with Sheltering Wings resources, long before they actually consider becoming a resident, correct?
0: Absolutely. And a person can connect with Sheltering Wings resources when they themselves are not in the abusive situation. So if I'm a manager or a co-worker of someone, I can call Sheltering Wings and I can share with the advocates that answer the phone a little bit about the situation and ask them, you know, how do I navigate this? What would be some questions that I could ask her or him to show my support for them or what resources are available? And there's things that we can just directly tell them over the phone or we can mail them some pamphlets that we have. Uh, We actually have a whole workplace guidebook that has conversation starters for managers uh, or colleagues, information about workplace policies. So structurally, with processes and, and within the framework of the building, what are some of those things that managers owners of companies should be mindful of to make sure that they're keeping their employees safe because just because something is happening at home does not mean that the effects of it are not going to spill into the workplace. And so employers need to be prepared for those kinds of situations. So we can help employers navigate both the conversations but then also from an organizational perspective what they should be mindful of to protect their employees.
1: What story do you tell to help someone understand the importance of the efforts? of sheltering wings.
0: So a recent story that I'll share with you that just totally gets me excited and warms my heart. There are two families that have been living with us for quite some time. And within 48 hours, each of them came to me and said, I found a house. I found a new place to live. You know, I'm getting ready to move to such and such community. And when people come up, and share that kind of information or when somebody passes their high school equivalency we'll have a graduation party for them in the kitchen and so we'll celebrate and and they can invite friends and family to those celebrations as well Um, because they if they have a larger support network then we want them to be a part of that too but man when when people come to us and they're hitting some of those milestones that they've been working so hard at for a really long time it is a cause for celebration here and we we love that we love to have those moments with residents because they work really really hard and they have a lot of barriers in a lot of cases that they're having to overcome it's a little bit different when you are navigating completing a high school equivalency when you live in a shelter than it is if you are on your own accord, you know, able to go and to do these things if if you don't have all of the resources at your disposal to be able to do that. And so they've worked really hard to get to that point to be able to do that. And when we see those steps of progress or even the little things. I mean, sometimes it's families that just don't have a whole lot of structure in their life and and when they are getting themselves into a routine and kids are going to school on a daily basis. And maybe attendance has been a problem for the kiddos in the past just because of the volatility of their home and not having structure and not having stability there. Um, When they start going to school on a regular basis, we love that. We love to celebrate with the families when those kinds of things are happening.
1: How in the world did you end up being the executive director of Sheltering Wife. You
0: know, I ask myself that all the time. Uh, no, so I had a great job with Riley Children's Foundation and thought that my career path was going to take me into higher education. And over the course of about two years of, I couldn't even tell you how many interviews, it just was not coming to fruition. And it was a really frustrating process. And I was on a trip to Cambodia in the summer of 2013. and while I was there, I was just really arguing with God because I felt like I was trying to pursue his plan for my life and what I thought I would be doing to help serve my community and and serve young adults by getting into higher education and it wasn't working out. So just, I was frustrated with that and where I was at in that process. But I just felt like while I was there in particular, that he kept telling me that he wasn't finished with me in nonprofit and I did not want to stay. And nonprofit. I was burnt out with fundraising, and that just wasn't my idea of, of what was next. But I've learned that when you argue with God and you win, that you still lose. And I think that God can handle our arguing, our wrestling things out, you know, when when we're having those honest conversations. If I wasn't arguing with them at that point, then I wasn't really being honest with them of how I was feeling about things. But I, I've learned that Submitting to his will, to his desire in my life is what the most important thing is. And so at the end of my time there and working with women and human trafficking, I I came back and I I said, okay, if you want me to be a nonprofit, then I'll start exploring options in that world. And so this actually was a friend of mine had told me about this job. This was the first job that I applied for. And over the course of five months, went through the interview process and it, it just it just fell in line for me every time that I I kind of had one of a lot of those moments of okay if this is the right job for me then I need a B and C to fall in line which normally never works out that way XYZ then typically happens but not this time I would pray for a B and C and a B and C would happen and then I would pray for the next three things you know and they would just fall into place so it just became abundantly clear to me that this is what was next and stepping into this role I I just see how In our life, you know, I did not come from an abusive relationship, but I believe that the strength of our community hinges on the strength of our families. And that's where my heart's passion lies. And I think that as we see deterioration in our families, we're seeing deterioration in our society, in our culture, in our community, and it breaks my heart. Um, I think that. Turning away from families has become too easy and too normal in lives, and so having an opportunity to speak into that through the lens of domestic abuse has been a real privilege for me. And it, it by no means is that we're, you know, proponents and advocates of divorce. And I think that that's a common misconception about us. But, but sometimes we know that when there are two people who are not willing to make changes, when they're, you know, that that abuse is an issue that just grieves the lord's heart and sometimes there's not an opportunity for reconciliation if one or both people are not choosing to embrace that sometimes despite that being the direction that families go it still is a grieving process and so we want to do everything that we can to help restore the family units as much as we can you know the intervention of through domestic abuse and, and helping families potentially together but oftentimes when they when they're at the point where they're seeking our services it's independently but helping them start again and reframe their understanding what healthy families look like is is really important to us and helping to prevent families from going through this and helping them from getting into these kinds of relationships in the first place, but establishing relationships built on love, trust, integrity, and honor of one another is so important. And and as we start to reclaim our families, as we start to help families see that, you know what, it's hard, it's difficult, but we can pursue God-honoring relationships differently and better than what we've done in the past, I think we'll start to see our culture change. I think we'll start to see um some of those issues that are are just continually creeping up and and ballooning, we'll start to address them differently and better and and more effectively and families are a solution to that. And and that's my personal passion. That's, you know, a burden that the Lord has placed on my heart for for years and years and so stepping into this role, I see how he prepares us. I see how Experiences that I had that I might have taken for granted and just kind of brushed off prepared me for such a time as this. I see how my own hurts in my own life, my own challenges in relationship and broken dreams in in the midst of that. I've seen how that prepared me for a different type of empathy and sympathy for the families that we're serving. And, And God is just so gracious to equip us. I love the saying of he doesn't always call the qualified, but he will always qualify the called. And I just feel like that is my walking billboard in my own life.
1: You are voluntarily wading in to people's messiest, despair, ugliest moments. Where do you find your hope and how do you instill hope in your staff?
0: For me personally, I just think that people are so important at the root of it which sounds so simple but i i genuinely do i think that every person is so important and so valuable and there are a lot of life situations and decisions and understandings and identities and different things that i don't understand and maybe don't even always agree with but at the core of it every person is a person and i think that they are worthy of our services of our compassion of our love and for me because i see people through that filter it certainly doesn't make it easy to travel the road with them but it gives me a perspective of if i was in that situation i wouldn't want someone to turn their back on me in my darkest moments i have had a community of support that has rallied around me and helped me traverse some really difficult situations and and helped me refocus and restart my life from where i thought it was going to go and say okay you know i i can do this and so passing it on for someone else is really important we're not meant to live in isolation if we really believe that and we really understand that then that means that there's both an obligation and an opportunity for us to actually live like that because we we can all support someone and provide empathy and sympathy and support them, meet them where they're at. Uh, We all need that, and we can offer that to somebody else. And when it comes to our staff, we've got a fantastic staff. I love the team that I get to work with. They're so strong and resilient, but they're human. We're all human, and so it is wearing and it is difficult some days, and um, it is not uncommon for there to be tears shed. Some days out of frustration, but oftentimes out of just brokenness. And when the families that we're serving are hurting, then we're hurting with them. But when you when you've got a team of people that understand, you know, there's there are days where it might be really difficult for one coworker and then they can rely on another coworker who, you know, is stronger and, and has the encouragement that they need and just the right words to say and, and sometimes they just physically wrap them up in a hug and, and we'll support the other person and then You know, two days later, the roles will be reversed, but we really rely on one another. And that's a huge blessing of support that we have here with the shelter. And so we're a very open environment. We we talk about a lot of things. We really encourage people to process things as they're experiencing them because we have to be mindful of that. We can only help the families that we're serving when we're at a healthy state ourselves. And so sometimes that means taking a break and, you know, stepping aside for a little bit, and, and that's okay you've got to create your own healthy boundaries in the midst of it as well. But when you're ready to go, you know, we're, we're gonna jump right back in and we're gonna get into the mess of it with our families.
1: When you experience your doubts, when do they hit and what are they doing to you?
0: You're getting personal and deep now. Um, that's real, that's life, that's, it's, I, we're human, I'm human, I'm a, I'm a solver. I am not the best of listeners, so I can tell people all day long that one of the best things that you can do for the families uh, that are experiencing domestic abuse is to listen to them, but I'm going to be completely and fully transparent here. I'm not great at that. I am a solver. If you come to me with a problem, I don't want to just listen to it. I want to fix it, and when I can't fix it, that's really hard for me, and that is where those moments of doubt start to creep in. I like to tell myself that there's a solution for everything, but the reality of it is that sometimes there's not, or sometimes the solution is not now, and sometimes we have to endure a little bit longer, try a little bit harder, or step back and wait and be patient or reassess and maybe go in a completely different direction. And when I have the different direction that we're supposed to move, That's a little bit easier for me but when i'm just supposed to sit back and wait and when a problem feels insurmountable that's when those moments of of doubt creep in because then i start to question my effectiveness our effectiveness as an organization but i can tell you that i know in my head that life just isn't so black and white if everything was solvable then I think, in, as a society, as a world, we, it would look very different, but clearly it's not. That's what's hard for me. Is, you know, I would love to just set every family up in a line and say, OK, so here's what we can do for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and now let's get to it. Let's make this you know, happen, and, and let's move on. Let, let's get this done. And that's just how my brain likes to operate. But life doesn't. Life is so much more complicated than that and and you peel the onion so once you kind of work through one challenge or issue you you come up with the next one and that's hard for me but I'm learning lessons in the midst of it and I'm I'm learning to be more patient and steadfast I'm learning to be more comfortable in the discomfort and I'm learning to listen, which is hard for me. I'm learning that, and there's value in the process of of learning those things. I oftentimes joke that I just wish that lessons were gifted to us. I wish that lessons weren't learned. So far, I haven't figured out how to make lessons be gifted, so I guess I'll just keep learning them.
1: How do you define success for you in the role?
0: When we have families that come and are celebrating milestones, that's success. When we have moments with families and they may not necessarily see the end in sight, but there's those moments where they'll sometimes say to us, I I don't know where I'm going. I don't even, I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know what is next, but I know that I'm in the right place. Sometimes they just have that sense of peace and assurance in the midst of where they're at. And when they're at that place, we know that there's a healing that's beginning to take place, and that's success. When we pull new community partners in that can provide extra resources for us and and help fill in some of those gaps that we weren't previously able to do before, that's success, but ultimately, In any regard when a person has an understanding that their past does not have to define them and that they can chart a new path moving forward ultimately that's what success looks like for us because it can it can look very different for each person but when they say I am in it I am ready to take that step forward and a new tomorrow when they have that sense of understanding and determination then they can do anything and that's a really cool thing to watch transpire in their life.
1: And I'm wondering how that's not the same story you're living because your past didn't determine what your future was in a lot of ways.
0: You know I I think that we oftentimes want to point to these major monumental life changes that happen in life. It's easier to look at those types of changes and point to that as you know this is what the turning moment or turning point was for me and and how things are different for me but And sometimes those things happen, but sometimes it's the day-to-day incremental growth. And that's what I think about when when you make that comment, that there have been those turning point moments for me in my life. And then there also have been those incremental day-by-day lessons that I'm learning. And we're just all always trying to acquire more tools in our toolbox to prepare us for whatever tomorrow brings us.
1: If the person who you were before you went to Asia met the person you are today, what would they see as the biggest difference?
0: I think that they would see the growth of understanding what compassion can look like. I think before I was good to a degree of extending the love and compassion of Christ to people, but my understanding of that was smaller. But as you experience life and you have this opportunity to fully experience the true breadth and depth of who God is, it gives me a different understanding and capacity for compassion and love for other people. You know, before some of the things I went through, I knew that God was my savior and he was my friend and he was my rock. But when you go through challenges, um, whether it's personally or professionally, when you overcome different hurdles, I learned in that process the magnitude more of who he was. So he became my healer, he became my comforter, my redeemer, my restorer, and all of those things. He's been all of those things all along, but I just needed him in a different way through different points in my life. And because I have experienced those things, because I've confronted some of those challenges in my own life, whether personally or professionally, and and worked through those new experiences, I think that my capacity for compassion has grown. I've never really thought of that before. Yeah, I I think that that's what I would point to the most from before I started here.
1: If someone has been with us through this conversation so far, what challenge would you make to them to face some problem that's chosen them like this chose you? What would you challenge them to do about the problem that's out there, that's theirs to work on?
0: My dad's mentor always would use the phrase, hold steady and keep sweet. And my dad then would share that with me. Or when Finding Nemo came out, he kind of transitioned it into just keep swimming. And I oftentimes reflect on that when going through my own challenges and and have used that as my own encouragement for others. I think that we can become understandably really short-sighted in the midst of challenges and circumstances that we're in. But the more that we live life, the more that we can look back and see how we've overcome those. And so I just would encourage people, hold steady. It gets better. There's a way. It might not exactly look like how we anticipate or even what we wanted, but if we keep at it, and we keep seeking God, we keep connecting with and relying on our trusted friends and family and our connections that we have and um, share life with one another and some hard work and some blood, sweat and tears and, and all of that. But when, when you hold steady, when you press on, this moment doesn't have to be the end. And eventually what happens is, is we're living tomorrow's history. And just keeping that perspective in mind, for me, has been what kind of gets me through those challenging moments.
1: If you could magically make somebody remember one key point from our conversation today, what would you wish they would remember?
0: I think it would be that we're not meant to live alone. And I, I hope that each person that's listening has a support network or group that they can rely on. And equally as important, I hope that they are a part of someone else's support network. There are so many different experiences and gifts and talents and abilities that each one of us have. And when we share life with one another, then we can rely on one another to help each other out. I am not the end all be all. I cannot do all things. And there are people in my life that I will go to to help in certain areas because it's just not the area of comfort for me or expertise or ability. But I I hope that people embrace that because there's a whole lot of people that are living in isolation. There's a whole lot of people that are experiencing loneliness and need a friend, need someone else to come into their life. Um, Whether they're in the midst of an unhealthy relationship or an abusive relationship or not, when you share life with someone, it gives you an opportunity and a pathway to be a support for the other person. I just think that there's a a great value in sharing life with one another.
1: If our listener has really started to question the relationship that, they are in and they are saying, you know what, I think I've got a bad normal now. What invitation would you give them?
0: I I would welcome anyone who's experiencing that or or even starting to process it in that manner to call us, 317-745-1496. And it's also on our website at shelteringwings.org. But when they call us, sometimes people will call us and won't even yet be able to fully identify whether or not it's an abusive relationship but they're starting to realize you know something isn't right I, I don't like the way that things are going I just need to talk through what's happening and what I'm experiencing and, and our advocates would be happy to have that conversation with them and sometimes when we're in the midst of conversations like that we'll help them navigate in one way and sometimes we'll say you know what I think that there's more to this and if you'd like to come in whether you need safe housing or if you just like to come in and speak with our therapist or a case manager, we can we can help you navigate that because sometimes people don't even recognize it in their own life exactly what it is, but, but we can help them talk that through and, and determine next steps.
1: If somebody's on the other end of the phone and, and you've got them for just that moment and you want to describe what it's like to be here in this safe place, what would you say to them?
0: I really think that sheltering wings is a place of refuge and it's a place of opportunity to be safe and to catch your breath. you know. In talking about all of the programs and services that we offer, sometimes people aren't ready to talk about those things yet. Sometimes they just need in their own life to escape the abusive situation that they're fleeing and take a breath, and, and that's okay. So we will meet them where they're at. And when they come into our facility, you know, we don't hit them hard with, okay, here's what the next steps are and we're gonna do da da da, 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 da and, and start outlining that. But, but we're really going to assess where they're at, welcome them with open arms, give them that opportunity to kind of gather themselves to get a sense of calmness and peace. And we're, we're really mindful of that. And the other thing is that there's other women and children here who have experienced the same thing. And so it's not uncommon for us to go through the kitchen and and for our residents to be sharing life with one another and they can empathize with each other and sometimes they'll share resources and and talk and and share their own experiences of what has happened and that's been really helpful for our residents as well as they're coming through here because they know that they're not alone they know that you know what they were experiencing is not just them sometimes they'll they'll say you know I'm not crazy you know I what I was thinking and what I was experiencing It wasn't just me, but I now see that this is a part of the cycle of abuse. And and so it, it helps them to process things in their own life when they can share that with others.
1: What else haven't we talked about that we should?
0: The only other thing that comes to mind that we briefly mentioned earlier is the component of prevention. Because one of the things that we have been learning more and more about is that are as important as our intervention services are, we'll continue to do them, we'll continue to focus on them, but we need to do more by the way of prevention because we don't wanna just put a band-aid on a problem as it's happening, but what can we do to stop it before it starts or stop it from happening again? And so that's really become a new focus for us over the last maybe two years, is talking about prevention and getting out into the community more. And so if there are churches that would like to invite us to talk with their teens about healthy relationships and parents about how to start conversations with their teens and signs to look for and and things with technology to be mindful of, we would love to come out and have those conversations. Or going into the workplace to talk about ways that they can keep their employees safe. And things to be mindful of, signs to look for, we, we're happy to do that, to come alongside and, and to equip our managers and owners differently and better so that they can address domestic violence in the workplace. Um, or in the schools. We go into the schools and talk with teens or at civic groups. You know, we, we love to go out and to talk about the things that we're doing because it's not just about us being a place of refuge here within our walls at Sheltering Wings, but it's really about being a, a resource for our community. and going beyond these walls because we know that for all of the families that we're helping here there are hundreds and thousands of other families in our community that are experiencing domestic abuse but they just haven't reached out to us. So how can we better equip our community to be a support for those individuals?
1: So my takeaway that I'm really sensing more than anything else if home isn't safe anymore, sheltering wings is a safe place until you find the right home. And that's really what this is all about. And the other thing is one of the residents that's a permanent resident here is Hope. And people can find it here. Normal doesn't have to be ugly. Normal can be wonderful.
0: I like that. I might steal that from you. Hope has taken up residence here. I like that.
1: And that's what makes you a hopeful Hoosier. And thanks for being on the program today. Thank you. I hope by now you know that Sheltering Wings is not only a shelter, but it is a terrific community resource for information for anyone who might think they're in an abusive relationship. If you'd like more information about Sheltering Wings, you can find them on the web at shelteringwings.org. Special thanks to our guest, Cassie Mecklenburg. I hope our conversation has helped inspire you to choose not to allow your past to determine your future. And as Cassie's dad says, stay true, and keep swimming. If you've enjoyed our program and found it helpful, please become a subscriber. We also appreciate your favorable reviews wherever you download your podcast. It helps us spread our hopeful message. You can also follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to message me directly, send me an email at andy at our theme music was composed and performed by Indianapolis' author, speaker, composer, musician, and licensed mental health therapist, George Middleton. Until next episode, I'm your Hopeful Hoosier host, Andy Dix. Thank you for listening. The Hopeful Hoosier Podcast is a production of A.D. Growth Advisors, Incorporated. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.